0: Today, I want, in the the most honest and open way that I can, to try and address a really fundamental question in life, and that is, why should I trust Jesus? Now, on a Sunday morning, you expect a lot of Christians to be in church who feel like, oh, that question's already been answered for me, but uh, this is a day that a lot of people are in church, and a lot of people are watching online, and more than we want to admit out loud, are asking this question at some level. Can I really trust Jesus? Can I know for sure that the things that I've been told about Jesus are true? How how can I really put my trust in Him? John tells us in chapter 20, the opening verse, that early on the first day of the week, on that first resurrection Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary Magdalene was the... She had major problems. We don't know what all was wrong with her, but we know that she had seven demons cast out of her. We don't know what all they had done to her in terms of sickness or mental illness or just, you know, torment, whatever. But she was jacked up. We can just say that. She was, she was messed up, and Jesus set all that right. And she was just so transformed because of that. She loved Jesus. And on that Sunday morning... She had been through all of the terrible emotional roller coaster and just bottomed out like everybody else on Friday to watch the one that she loved so much as he was tortured and then eventually nailed to a cross and hung there for six hours outside of Jerusalem as he bled to death and was then stabbed brutally with a spear to to make sure that he was dead, and she watched him be buried. And through the Sabbath, that dark, dark weekend, it just... Obviously, was on her mind. What could she do to come as one final notion, one final act, pay some kind of respect to Jesus? And it occurred to her to go and to properly embalm his body for burial. And so she went to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And the one thing that you can count on is this, that Mary believed about Jesus, what most of the world, what much of the world believes about Jesus, that he was a good man. He was a great leader, an unbelievable, unparalleled example, that he was a great prophet from God, that there was something special about his life that he brought to the Jewish people and and to the Roman Empire. He brought something that was so lacking and that was so desperately needed in terms of compassion and a heart for people that he embodied all that has ever been good in humanity, that Jesus was all of that. But you can also be sure of this, that she believed that Jesus was dead and that he would stay dead. She didn't come out of curiosity to see if something exceptional had happened that Sunday morning. She came because she knew his body was dead and decaying. And she brought a lot of spices and some ladies with her to help her go in and take care of his body as it was decaying there in the tomb. And her expectation was only one thing that the dead man she saw taken off a cross on Friday was still going to be in a cave, lying there cold and dead on Sunday morning. Now, most of you know the the Jesus story. Most of you know the Passion Week story. In case you don't, I'll just remind you of the key events of this week. And it's striking to know that in all of human history, without anything that even runs a close second or, or close third, the two most significant events in all of human history happened in the same week. They happened on Good Friday and on the following Sunday morning. But Holy Week and, and all of the stuff that, that came to a head that week, it really began on Sunday when Jesus and His closest followers arrived in Jerusalem and it was not... A subtle, we're going to slip into town kind of moment. And the disciples had been dreading this. They, they had been sort of slowly on a march from way up to the north, working their way to Jerusalem. And the disciples did not want to go to Jerusalem. In fact, the last time or two that they had gone into Jerusalem, it had been... Against their wishes, in fact, the whole thing of having to go back and raise Lazarus from the dead, that whole story, you know, the disciples were like, we ain't going back to Jerusalem because we know what's coming there. Somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to get hurt. It's going to be bad news. The religious leaders are so mad. They're so upset and, and so uh, jealous, but it goes way beyond that, that something really terrible is going to happen. And you remember how in John 11, finally, Thomas is the one who spoke up and said, look, let's just all go die with him there. And they actually made it in and out without anybody getting killed. So they're like, let's never go back to Jerusalem again. Bad stuff will happen there. Well, Jesus now for months has been saying, for six solid months, since Caesarea Philippi has been saying, we are going to Jerusalem and there I will be arrested by the chief priests and the elders of the people. I will be murdered and I will rise from the dead. He didn't tell it in a parable form for six solid months. He just, he completely took the cover off of this thing and said, here's exactly what's going to happen. I want you to understand what is coming. So when they marched into Jerusalem, you can imagine their hearts were just racing. It's like, oh my goodness, it's coming. Something big is coming. And boy, was it. But it was really bizarre because on Sunday, instead of a big showdown, what you get is word has come in advance of Jesus into the holy city. And the crowds come out, and they're just going bonkers. It's like a sports team coming back after winning a national championship. They're like, woo woo! it's Jesus, the Messiah, because they believed that He really might be the one sent from God. And, of course, they believed that that meant He's going to come in and kick these sorry Romans out of here, all the Roman soldiers and their taxes, and the oppression is going to be gone. So you come on in, and you claim your throne, and we'll follow you. Make it happen. That's what they're expecting. That's why the whole thing of Palm Sunday and they're laying their coats and their palm branches down for him to pass over on those as if it's a red carpet being rolled out for him. And he comes into the city and he doesn't do anything resembling what they had expected. Instead, he marches to the temple. Now, when I say temple, don't think in terms of the little building that's at the center of that. Remember, the temple is surrounded by these huge concentric courtyards that basically had been transformed. a terrible thing, but had been transformed into huge open air markets. And what happened there wasn't anything resembling worship. What was happening there was two things. It was the buying and selling of animals and the exchange of money because it's Passover week, and so uh, religious pilgrims from all around the Mediterranean have converged on Jerusalem as they would every year for the different festivals. And they're coming to the temple because it's there that they need to offer their sacrifices and give their gifts to God. It's what they're thinking. And so the religious leadership, the chief priests and the, the ranking people around them, they are like mob bosses in, you know, over the casinos in Las Vegas. They have turned this whole thing into a gigantic money-making out here for them. Here's what they've done. They've said, first of all, all of you who've come from foreign lands, God doesn't want your foreign money. You can only use our jewish currency so you have to come it's like at the airport you know when you go to a foreign country you've got to come to the currency exchange but we are going to sock it to you on the exchange rate so we make a bunch of money and oh by the way the sacrifices that you've come to offer don't bring your animals because our priests are instructed to reject them and say oh that is not an animal without blemish we see a problem with that you're going to have to purchase your sacrifices here and guess what they're going to be greatly inflated in price. You'll pay twice as much for you know, a, a goat or a ram or whatever. Why? So that the, the leadership, the crowd in charge, gets lots of money out of this deal. So when Jesus marches into town, he goes right to the heart of the matter. And, and he just announces out loud, you know, this is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And he platted a whip and he just went off on them. I mean, th- this would have inspired Medea right here. What he d- you know, instead of saying Jesus went Medea, Medea would be, you know, paled by what, what Jesus did. When he kicked over the tables and the, and the benches and he used his whip to run all of these people out of there. That moment... Sealed the deal. He had made the religious leaders mad up to that point. They were jealous and they were trying to figure out a way to kill him. At that point, this would be the equivalent of you go to Las Vegas this week and you go in and wreak havoc in the casinos so that it's shut down and their money flow stops for even a day. And you see how long you keep breathing. You see how long you're free to, to roam in and out of the casinos. It won't happen. You will disappear well, they determined that day Jesus has to disappear. He has to die. That's at the beginning of the week. Well, by Thursday, a plan has been put in place involving one of his 12 closest followers. And on Thursday night, they've orchestrated things so that they know where he loves to go and pray with his disciples. And so they've gotten inside information that he's at the Mount of Olives just across the Kidron Valley, about a half mile outside the city. And they put together a a band of armed men with torches and spears and swords, and they go out, and by force they take Jesus. And there's this one little brief moment of confrontation where Peter pulls out a sword and tries to make a fight of it, and Jesus makes him put it away. And in that moment, all of the followers of Jesus run scared into the dark. I mean, it is a moment of total panic and chaos. One of the writers describing probably himself Describes where one of them in trying to get away is there's just you know, people clutching for you know, who's with him and we're taking you to, And he says he literally had his clothes torn off of him and runs naked into the darkness. It's that kind of chaos and terror. They carry Jesus into the city through the course of Thursday night. He's carried in front of every political and religious leader that you can think of. Put through essentially seven mock trials. Very brief trials that weren't even true trials. And by Friday morning... You know, they had already made up their minds before the night started, but they're able to issue the decree, you know, this man is worthy of death, but they have to get Roman uh, approval through the Roman governor, Pilate, for him to be put to death. And it takes them back and forth, and finally Pilate yields and, and says, crucify the man, but first take him out and have him flogged. And so that's the most brutal part of the story is, if you ever saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, they do a pretty good job of depicting that. He, he didn't just get a beating. It's with a cat of nine tails so that all these pieces of bone and sharp metal are ends on the ends of the seven whip tails that just tear into his back so that they're able to, with dozens and dozens of lashes, to just whip, to, to tear away all the flesh and through the muscle and even into the vital organs. And it's why Jesus was dying before he ever even got to the cross. He was so brutalized. And when that's finished, they had him march outside the city And they nailed him to a cross and hung him there for everybody to see, hanging between two criminals. And for six hours on Friday, the Son of God hung there, bleeding to death. At noontime, it turned dark and just weird stuff going on as as he's hanging there. And finally, at three o'clock... Jesus breathed his last and he gave up his spirit and crazy stuff happened when that happened the earth began to shake and tombs are opened up and people that had been dead suddenly are alive and the veil of the temple is torn in two and even the centurion overseeing the death of Jesus is going wow this guy must have been the son of God well it's three o'clock in the afternoon and at sundown these being Jewish people the Sabbath begins and so they can't do any work whatsoever so it's a particularly Holy Day, that week. And so they want to get rid of all these dead bodies. So we've got to get Jesus down and get these criminals out of sight. And uh, normally they, the Romans would leave bodies up for days or weeks at a time because they wanted to make a statement. They wanted the Jewish people, whoever the conquered people are, to have to look. And every time they see them, it's like, you just remember. You remember this is what Rome does to people who don't obey. So normally they would have all three stayed on the hill, but it's a special holy day and that wouldn't be tidy, you know, to have nasty bodies hanging up there. So let's get those down and out of sight so we can have a pretty holiday. We need we all need a pretty Passover. And so they go and they ask for uh, the body of Jesus. And it's a, a very peculiar thing that they actually were able to bury his body because and you may not know this, but in ancient times it was against the law to bury a crucified body. The reason for that is that it was part of the the sentence. You not only were crucified, but you knew and the family knew this body cannot be buried. It's just part of the deal. There's going to be no closure. This body is just going to have to stay exposed until the animals eat it or until it rots. This is a part of how Rome flexes its muscle and punishes people. So two close friends of Jesus... Uh, went in and begged for his body. The only way you could get around this whole thing of not burying a crucified body is you had to pay off the leadership. And so they more than likely didn't beg with empty hands. They almost certainly had to go in and pay substantial money to get the body of Jesus. And now you've got to do this before sundown. So they hurriedly embalm the body. They wrap it up and they take it to Joseph of Arimathea to his tomb. And they're going to let Jesus borrow the tomb. That sounds weird to us. There are caves everywhere in this part of Israel. And they're This is one of these little shallow caves. And you don't use a tomb long, long term the way that they did it in ancient times. You stick a body in there and you leave it for however long, two or three years until the body completely decays. And then you go in and you take the bones out and you put them in a little bone box, a little ossuary about the size of a small ice chest. And then you would take that and give it to the family. So the plan most likely would have been to come back in a couple of years, collect Jesus bones and go give them to Mary or somebody in the immediate family. That's the plan. So on Friday evening, they're going to they're see his body for the last time for a very long while, and eventually they'll come back and collect the bones. The last thing they do, Joseph and Nicodemus, is take a gigantic stone and roll it over the mouth of the tomb, knowing this is the last time that we'll see the face of our Lord. And they walk away Friday night as the sun has set. Hearts probably heavier than they've ever experienced in their entire lives. And the one thing that they know... Jesus is dead, and dead men stay dead. But on Sunday morning, Mary has come. Mary Magdalene, she's come with a bunch of spices and some friends to help her to embalm the body of Jesus. Which, by the way, kind of begs the little question of, why did she come to, to uh, to, to embalm an already embalmed and buried man? And the only answer I can even hope to offer is, because she was a woman... And she's probably thinking all weekend, it was a couple of men who did it, so I know they didn't do it right. I'm going to go back and do this thing right. I don't know, it's my best guess. You figure that one out. But she goes to do what has already been done. But she doesn't come to see a miracle. She comes to take care of a dead body. Now, I would just dare say that Mary loved Jesus more than any of us. As much as we raise our hands in worship and say, we love you, Jesus... I just think Mary loved Jesus more. And part of that is because of what Jesus had done very personally in her life. Part of why I say that is because Mary is going to the tomb 36 hours, more than 36 hours after he has died. And she is going to unbury Jesus and unwrap Jesus and finish embalming his body. And I'm just asking you, who would you do that for? Seriously, I mean, who do you know that is such a close friend that you're like, you know what? If you were dead and buried, and I got thinking about it, and I'm like, that's a pretty lousy mortician. I don't know that they did it right. I'm going to go dig them up after a couple of days, and I'm just going to make sure it's done. I'm going to make sure they got bled out right and the right embalming fluids. But, I mean, nobody would do that, would you? If so, you're a little freaky in my opinion. I mean, that's just weird. Would you agree? That is an incredible level of love for Jesus. To go and do that. And as much as Mary knew and loved Jesus, she was shocked when she got there and found an empty tomb. She was blown away, but you can bet on this Mary did not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. She did not. Verse 2. So Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one that Jesus loved. That's John talking about himself. That's kind of an unusual thing. He refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And he said, it's almost like John's going, you know, Jesus, like all the other disciples, he loved me. (laughs) Did not have self-esteem issues. And And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Now, one thing I want you to notice about this setting is. The disciples are nowhere near the tomb. The disciples, we find out, are off hiding somewhere else. And ladies have to run to where they are hiding. And she goes charging in and saying, he's not there. The body's not there. They have stolen the body. Well, first thing, just don't let it be lost on you that there isn't one disciple outside the tomb going ten, nine, eight. Come on, Jesus. No. For six months... Jesus has been saying over and over, hey guys, this is what we're doing. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. The chief priests and elders of the people, they're going to to beat me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be dead and buried, but three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. They heard that again and again, and in spite of that, there isn't one man, there isn't one woman. There is no follower of Jesus waiting at the tomb on Sunday morning because there is no follower of Jesus expecting the resurrection. None. They had seen the miracles. They had seen him calm the sea. They had seen him cast out demons. They had even seen him raise the dead. And they believed what Mary believed that this Jesus, he was such an incredible man. He was such a powerful example. He was such a great teacher, such an extraordinary human being. But they also knew what Mary knew this incredible man was dead. And dead men only do one thing. Dead men stay dead. Well, Luke, he was probably, I, I really believe, the the best historian that the world has ever known in, in the ancient world. He was so meticulous. He was a doctor. He was not one of the inner circle of 12, but he's the guy who went back, And man, he just researched everything. He interviewed everybody. So he winds up writing the longest of the Gospels where he's collected all of this info and he couldn't stop there. So he has to write a second volume. He writes the Acts of the Apostles. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. When you finish the Gospels, it's Luke's volume two, where he tells the story of the next 30 to 35 years, picking up right there at the moment of post-resurrection And tells what all happened as the Holy Spirit came and the church was birthed over the next three decades or so. So Luke, he goes back and he'll almost always give you more details about any story. The same is the case that morning. And he tells us in uh, Luke 24, it was Mary Magdalene, not just her, but it was also Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and the others with him. These ladies who always followed Jesus, they were the ones who told this to the apostles. But the apostles did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Can can you see that scene on Sunday morning? It's it's not just Mary Magdalene, but she's got some other friends in tow who who are going to help her with this project. And they've come running and they're so upset. You can only imagine tears streaming down their faces and they come in. Hey, guys, you're not going to believe this. It's terrible. It's it's insult added to injury. But now his body isn't even there. They have stolen our Lord's body. The disciples looking at each other. And it's like, a bad dream gets worse. What are y'all talking about? Nobody. This is nonsense. This is crazy talk. What do you mean? There's nobody? We all saw the body. The body is buried. They're like, "No, that's what we're talking about. We went to the cave where the body was buried, and you know the whole stone in front of the cave? The stone is out of the way, and there is nobody in there. We know that he's been stolen." And they're like, "This is crazy talk. This is. Nonsense. That is the key word in this passage. Nonsense. Because for many today, some watching online, some in the room today, the thought of a resurrection really does seem like nonsense, doesn't it? And I get it. Nobody really wants to go, I feel that way because you're in a room. On Sunday morning with a preacher up front and nobody wants to go. I've always thought the notion of a resurrection is a pretty long shot, a pretty far fetched thing. But if we're talking about any situation other than a story in the Bible, doesn't resurrection seem like a pretty long, pretty far stretch? Somebody so thoroughly dead, drained of all body fluids. And they just come back to life two days later in Jewish thinking three days later. They would count Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Well, the disciples felt that way. The idea of a resurrection is so foreign to them, they can't believe it. It's it's not so much that they were skeptics. They were just realists. They knew what dead people do. They weren't superstitious. They just fully expected that this is realistic. The movement is over. It's done. It died on Friday. And I need for you to let the weight of that set in. By all human ways of reckoning things, the Jesus movement should have died on that Friday. Because there have been a lot of other religious leaders in some ways similar to Jesus. And those those movements have risen and declined. This guy was only 33 years old. He hadn't even really hardly journeyed outside his own tiny little country. He'd never written anything down. I mean, he just, it would seem, should have been a character with very minor impact, especially in light of the fact that he was murdered at such a young age and he's buried. Should be the end of the story. And the disciples are thinking in those terms. You can count on that. You can imagine the conversations by Saturday night, you know, it's like, you know, so what are you guys going to do? Oh, we're going to go back and see if we can get our fishing boats back and go back to doing what we know. I mean, we know how to fish. Nothing else. We'll go back and we'll fish. It's been a good ride, guys. It's a terrible ending. It's been a good ride. We enjoyed the time. We're going to lay here till the heat's off. We're probably going to have to stay here for a few more days because we do not want to be seen in the streets. When people stop talking about Jesus and the next story comes along, the next time an airliner goes missing or something, you know, there's another news story, we'll, we'll slip out of town. That's the plan. Verse 12. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is Peter, the rock. That's what Jesus had named him. You are the rock. I mean, Peter is the one everybody knows when Jesus is gone, it's all going to fall to Peter. Yeah, I mean, there's the the twelve and there's the inner three. But look, in every situation that Jesus isn't there, Peter's in charge. He is clearly the leader of the group. And oh, by the way, it is how it's going to play out. Peter is going to be for the coming years. He is going to be the central leader in the church. That's why the Catholic Church points back to him and says, there's our first pope. Peter was such a central figure. Well, I just want you to notice this about Peter. Peter, being the fiery hothead that he was, he ran out there most likely trying to figure out, I want, if somebody's been messing with Jesus' body, I want to know who's been messing with it because I'm going to kick his tail. And he goes charging out there to see who's been messing with the tomb. And he looks in and there's no body and there's no one around to pick a fight with. And he just walks away going, well, that's weird. You know, part of what's weird is the grave clothes are there. I mean, it's one thing for people to be grave robbers, but we didn't put any any loot in the tomb with Jesus. We just wrapped him in some cloths. This is creepy because they not only didn't come in and steal gold and silver, they didn't even take him out in the grave clothes. They stripped him. I mean, gross. It's like if you go steal a body that's decaying. Bring some more calls to wrap him in. Bring some glad garbage bags to put him in. Good night. Don't don't strip him down naked and bring him out like that. That's just creepy. So we're not surprised that Peter leaves wondering to himself, Ooh, what happened? I just want to say, if you are a skeptic this morning, and I'm not saying that in any condescending way. There are a bunch of us who by nature go, Look, I believe in the things that I can see and prove and test and measure. And this whole thing about Jesus and the resurrection, it's really hard to do any of that with it. If the, the whole idea of Jesus' resurrection is tough for you to swallow. Can I just give you a comforting word? There isn't one single original follower of Jesus who believed in the resurrection. Not one. If they did, they would have been at the tomb. If they did, they would have celebrated when Mary came in with the news. None of them believed in a resurrection. Not at sunup on Sunday morning. Now, something's going to happen that day that's going to change it for all of them. But at that moment, none believed. Now, here's the thing that I want you to have to wrestle with if you struggle with this story. The fact that the earliest followers of Jesus documented their own disbelief. This is a huge deal. If you're a person like I have been at a time in the past where the whole thing of how do I know what to believe in this? It's a really old story. How do I know how to file this away and what to believe about this? Okay, this is a huge, important point. The people who recorded the story, the ones who were there. They tell a story that if it's fabricated, makes no sense. If Jesus is dead and gone, the movement's going to fall completely on their shoulders. This is clear, by the way, how it ended up playing out. That's still what happened. It fell to their shoulders. The movement lives or dies with the inner circle of Jesus. And so, okay, if Jesus is dead and gone, we've got to tell the story in a way where Jesus just passes his stuff on to us. And now it's our job to make this even bigger and better. So we've got to make sure that we paint the story right. Absolutely. You're going to paint yourself in the picture as being able to say, i tell you what, it was a tragic day when they killed a good man. You know, it's like in our lifetime, you know, if we want to say it was a terrible day when they killed JFK or when they assassinated... Dr. Martin Luther King or, you know, whatever figures. It 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 was a terrible day, but what they stood for didn't end the day that they died. And we carried that message forward. And here's what we've done with it. If you're going to tell the story that way, then you've got to say, but we believed. And we stood with him because we believed in him. And ultimately, if you're going to weave this story as a fabrication, you can't paint yourself. As being the ones who ran into the darkness scared to death. You can't paint yourself as the ones who were hiding in a room. Who don't show up at the tomb. You can't paint yourself as the chief leader of the group. Being there kind of hiding as they've arrested Jesus. And it's like I am going to see if I can slip in with the crowd and nobody notice. And when a woman comes along and says, I know you. I saw you out there with him in the garden. You're one of his followers. Oh, no, I don't... You are mistaken. I am not whoever you're thinking of. No, that's not me. No, you, you, you're a voice. Your your accent, that gives you away. You're a Galilean. You are one of his followers. Who knew, ma'am? You, mis- you are mistaken about my accent. I have never known the man. Somebody else, uh-uh. We know you, buddy. You're a Jesus follower. And now... Cursing, cursing Jesus. I don't know that blankety-blank man. You do not paint a picture that looks like that. Not if the movement's going to fall on you. Nobody's going to follow you. Nobody follows that guy. You paint a picture on Sunday morning where you're all at the tomb. This is it, guys. He told us three days later, the sun's about to cover up. Listen, do you hear anything? I hear some rustling around. I think something's going on. It's going to be good. Come on, John, get out your guitar. Get kumbaya going. It's going to be a high, holy moment. Woo, light your candles. Here he comes. No. I guarantee you, you don't write a story where you're all in high. And certainly in the ancient world, you don't cast... A little group of women, sinful woman at the head of the group, as kind of the heroes of the story, that they're the only ones who have enough gumption, backbone, faith, whatever you want to call it left, that they go to the tomb before dark. You would not paint women. There's only one reason to tell the story that way. When we ask the question that I'm asking, your outline. So, you know, why would four gospel writers present Jesus' closest followers as being confused, bewildered, and afraid? There is only one reason you would tell that story that way when you're telling it firsthand. It is because you were confused, bewildered, and afraid, and you just decided to write the story straight up the way that it happened. Scholars today, modern scholars who are text critical analysts, you know, they they don't have to be Christian. They're just experts at analyzing ancient literature and you know, determining what's accurate and how it lines up and what's mythical, what's fable. People who go back and study the Scriptures come to this conclusion again and again that the Gospels and the message of the resurrection absolutely have the clear ring of truth because of this. Anything that's mythical fable in, in nature a couple of things you can count on that the people who are writing themselves in the story always shed themselves in a great light they are heroic they have giant faith they have giant powers they, they do amazing things and the the guys who wrote the story described themselves again and again at times they almost look like spiritual keystone cops in the story where Jesus is constantly going, guys, how much longer are we going to have to put up with you? Do you still have no faith? It's because they're telling the story straight up. Through the central events, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And they're like, yikes, let's get out of Dodge. Go hide in the darkness. They're running away. You don't write the story that way unless it happened that way. Only one reason to tell it that way. Only one reason to share That kind of weakness, that kind of fear and confusion, if you really were that afraid. Now, one of the things that I want you to consider about this is that today, 2,000 years later, we still know of this Jesus. We still speak of this Jesus. He is the best known figure today of anyone in the world. Think about that better known than our president he's better known than Vladimir Putin you name it you pick anybody in history there is no one as well known as Jesus he didn't ever write anything down that we know of he never led an army he never fought a battle and he never traveled outside a tiny tiny little area in the Middle East and he's the best-known figure in all of human history now let me ask a question why do you know of Jesus? And you may say, well, because of my mom and dad and they took me to church. Yeah, but I'm saying think beyond that. Why did your mom and dad know of Jesus? Why, why does anybody know of Jesus? Well, the answer really boils down to this. You know about Jesus. Not because of what he taught. That's not why you know about him. You know about Jesus, not because he did miracles. You know about Jesus because he rose from the dead. The same people who were so skeptical and afraid and so certain that this good man, this great teacher, was dead and going to stay dead were completely transformed and had a very different message because of what happened on that Sunday afternoon and in the six weeks that followed. This Jesus that they couldn't find, that they were so distressed to watch die and even further distressed to know that his body had been stolen, were blown away when, as they are... As we go on to find out later in the story, Sunday afternoon, they are back behind locked doors. They're not out there saying, let's roam around and see if maybe Jesus came back to life. Mm -mm. They said, let's get back to the room. Let's lock the door behind a locked door. (laughs) And then Jesus shows up. Okay, that is double whammy right there. First of all, there's supposed to be 11 of us in the room, and now there's 12, and the door is still locked. And the really scary part is, number 12, we watched him die two days ago. Anybody uptight at this point? It, it scared them to death. That's why Jesus' first words to them is, Hey guys, don't be afraid. Because right now, they're probably needing to change drawers. It's a, it is a disturbing moment. New man in the room, the door is locked, and it's the dead guy. That's what happened Sunday afternoon. The reason you know who Jesus is today is not because he was a good teacher. A bunch of good teachers have come and gone, and with their deaths and the deaths of the generation that they impacted, the movement died. The Jesus movement not only hasn't died in 2,000 years, how striking is it to know that within the first hundred years... It went from a few little people who could meet in one upper room to the point that within a hundred years, one out of 22 people on the planet knew and trusted Jesus, and today, one-third of the planet, well beyond two billion people, openly confess Jesus as their Lord and King. The movement is gaining momentum 2,000 years later. That doesn't happen because he was a good teacher. It doesn't happen because his teachings are still sound today, though they are. It doesn't happen because he did things others couldn't do. It happened... Because he rose from the dead. And in case that's not a real convincing thing, let me point you back to where I I take that from. Peter and these others who were so scared and who just looked so bad in the story are radically transformed. They get to spend six weeks with Jesus, not just with those twelve, but Jesus appears to lots of people. At one point, he appears to 500 people at one time. And he's he's not like some mystical figure who sort of fades in and he's gone like a puff of smoke. No, he would show up and say, come on over here and talk to me. Go ahead. You can put your hands in the nail holes, my hands and feet. See that great big gaping hole. Yeah, that was the one from the spirit. Put your fist in there. Feel of it. I'm here. I'm not a spirit. I'm alive. Give me some fish. I want to eat with you. I, you know, I want you to understand I am alive from the dead. You're not having a dream. I mean, he appeared for six weeks, just right and left all these different people. And these people hit the streets. After this, and you know what they did when they hit the streets, they told everybody who would listen that they didn't tell them what Jesus had taught. They did not run around and go, hey, guys, we want to tell you about Jesus. You remember the sermon on the Mount when he said blessed or the poor is. They didn't talk about that. They didn't say, hey, do you remember the story that he told about the prodigal son and then his older brother? How jealous. No, nope, they didn't tell that story. They didn't tell any of those stories. They went to the streets and day after day, they told one story. This Jesus, the Jesus that everybody's talking about, he was crucified right here outside of Jerusalem. He was buried and we have seen him. He is raised from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead and we are witnesses to this. And that's why you know about him. That one reason is why you know who Jesus is. One thousand nine hundred and eighty seven years after he died is because he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead and he still lives. That's why you know about him. Now, we all know the story or many of us know the story of what happened about ten days after Jesus ascended back into heaven. And they got to watch him do that. How cool was that? That they actually watched him take off like a rocket About ten days after that, the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter, the one who had been such a coward, stands up and preaches boldly in the same place where the people had gone after Jesus and had, you know, the same crowd that had Jesus put to death. He boldly preaches the gospel to them, and 3,000 place their trust in Jesus. And so a very short time after that, they're going back, as was their daily thing, they're going back into the temple courts, this big open-air area, and they pass by a crippled beggar. They see this guy every day. Everybody in the city knows him because he's been there. for. He's been crippled since birth. So there is no welfare or um, disability check. So he just has to beg for a living. So they're passing by and he's shaking his cup at them. And, and they look down and Peter says, you know, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I will give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And suddenly <laughs> legs and ankles and feet that were messed up or straight and functional and that guy hops up and he starts jumping and shouting and doing the woohoo glory dance because he has never walked in his life and now he won't leave Peter and John he, he follows them into the temple area and he's like look at my legs I can't walk and people are looking at him going isn't that so-and-so I mean he's all the time begging here but I have never seen him walk before. What's going on? And so now there's getting to be a crowd. And Luke says... I mean, it got to where just people are running. You know how it is that people start to see a crowd. It's like, what's going on over there? Now they're just running. It's a huge mob. All these thousands of people that gather in the temple courts. And and what is going on? And so now the Romans and the religious leaders are... What is happening here today? And Peter steps up and he goes... Hey, in case you're unclear what just happened... This poor guy who's been crippled for so long that was just healed and can walk. it's not through any strength or godliness that we possess. We just want to be real clear about this. It is in the name of Jesus Christ and by His power that this man stands before you today. And then, I mean, from this point forward, you get a crowd and Peter is preaching. And he goes on to say, The God of our fathers has glorified His servant, Jesus You, now listen to his boldness, talking to the crowd that has killed Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Let that statement sink in. The irony of that. You murdered the author of all life. But God, God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. What are you going to do with that? Don't tell me he wasn't raised from the dead. We saw it. He is alive. And it's just driving people crazy. Some people, it's thrilling. Religious leaders, it's killing. They're like, don't say that. How? Can you explain the boldness of this guy? He has been a coward before. Cursed. Denied in every way that he could. The name of Jesus. And now... He's stepping out in front of masses of people, and he does it again and again. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, and Acts 5. Every single chapter, Peter stands in front of whatever crowd will show up, and he lays it out there straight. And every time, he is shaking his bony finger, in their faces, is going, You killed Jesus. You put the Son of God to death, but God raised him from the dead. Yeah. That's his message. And as the exclamation point, he says, "...and we've all seen him alive again and again. He is risen. He's not a Lord who lived. He is a Lord who lives." and rains and so now oh man it's getting wild more and more people that day are just like it, it's just like wildfire spreading and they're all talking about this is true I mean I've heard other people saying that they've seen Jesus but now I mean this guy's clearly communicating and he was like the really close follower and I mean is this the truth and immediately word gets back to Caiaphas and Annas these are the high priests and the former high priest and the, the elders and They tell the Roman leadership, go grab these guys right now in the temple courts. This is getting out of control. Arrest them right now. So they grab them. Let them cool it. Let them spend the night in prison. Lock them up for tonight. Let's give them a night to think about the position that they are in. We had their leader put to death and we will not hesitate to have them put to death. Let's give them a night to think about that. And then let's see what they have to say tomorrow. So they spend the night in jail. And then the next day in Acts 4. Caiaphas and the other leadership say all right now let's bring those guys in let's see what they have to say for themselves now think about it if you're in Peter's shoes you had a night to consider they killed our leader and he wouldn't stay dead which was so inconsiderate of him I mean just so problematic for the leaders who had him put to death but they did kill your leader and they know the best way to kill this movement is to kill you and now you're going to answer. You're not talking to the crowd anymore. You are talking to the mob bosses. This is the head of the Jewish mafia, the ones who ordered the hit. And they're saying, all right, in private. Now, let's hear what you've got to say. Acts 4. Verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and we're being asked how he was healed. OK, how are you going to finish that sentence? You just say, well, you know, we prayed for him and we were kind of surprised, too. And it worked out nicely in the story. Nope. Then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He just can't leave that out. But God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And salvation is in no one else. It's found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Boy, it's like asking for it right there, isn't it? I mean, could you be any more confrontational and bold? This guy who was a coward is now a lion. And then when the leadership, when they heard this and they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Friends, I just want to remind you that this Peter is the same guy who just two months earlier believed On Sunday morning, Jesus is dead, and dead men stay dead. Jesus was a great man, but he's a a dead great man. And two months later, day after day after day, he is able to look people in the eye, the very people who had Jesus killed, and say, I am not afraid of you." you. You decide for yourselves which makes more sense. For us to listen to you, who tell us to never speak in his name again, or to listen to the one who was raised from the dead. We know, we have seen with our own eyes, the resurrection of Jesus is what brought about this transformation. Part of what tells us that these guys speak the truth, part of it is the transformation in their lives, but part of it is this. Almost every single one of them were martyred because of this faith, because of this message. And here's something that you need to know. People won't die for a lie, knowingly. There's almost nobody on the planet who will knowingly die for a lie. We'll defend it. We'll suffer for a lie if it, if it benefits us. But when it gets down to it and we say, Tom Lanahan, you tell the truth about this or we're going to kill you right now. And if you don't speak the truth, if you don't change this lie that you've been speaking, we're going to kill you today. Tom's going to tell the truth just like I would. You're going to admit, okay, look, no, he didn't come back to life. We hid his body. We did whatever... To a man, each one of these people were willing to die. You don't die for a lot. No one does. These men were willing to take this to the grave. They were willing, one after the other, to be martyred because they knew that the message they shared had changed their lives and it was the message that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Now, it's amazing how the message of Jesus... Hasn't always survived and grown. It, It outlasted everything around him. I mean, think about it. It not only outlasted the leaders who put him to death, but it outlasted the Roman Empire itself. By a long shot. Why? It wasn't his teaching. It wasn't his miracles. It was the fact that he rose from the dead. Today, Jesus stands at a unique place in the world in that every religion, essentially, wants a little piece of Jesus. Have you noticed that? It's a really kind of striking thing. I mean, in a day and time, and it's like, well, everybody finds their own way to God. Okay, that's foolishness in and of itself, but that's another story for another day. But it's kind of interesting how all these other religions that are going to be their own way to find themselves to God, they all want a piece of Jesus. Jesus stands as such an extraordinary figure that... It has almost become universal now that the world goes, okay, we get it that Jesus was this character in history and that he taught these things and he did these things. Because, by the way, can I just... And I don't expect some people to accept this because I said it. I really don't expect you to. I'm just going to tell you the truth about it. Solid scholars no longer debate the historicity of Jesus, what he did and what he taught. They just don't. I mean, you can find foolish people who are pseudo-intellectuals who will try and say, well, we don't know if Jesus lived or did it. Trust me. I'm not just talking about Christians, just decent historians. They don't debate this. He is the most thoroughly chronicled character in ancient history. And the accuracy of the scriptures, if, if you do the textual analysis, you will find there is nothing else like it. He was this character in history. He was a rabbi in Palestine during this time frame. And the world by and large, gets that and has bought that. World religions look at Jesus and they say, well, we certainly want to incorporate Jesus into this. I mean, Islam, the second largest religion in the world, they absolutely want some Jesus. They include Jesus in their story. I mean, like, how are you going to oppose Jesus? Who's hating on Jesus? Seriously, what are you going to pick out about Jesus to hate on? I mean, it's pretty impeccable there. So, all right, we all want some of Jesus. But here's the problem. We wind up in two groups. I want you to just picture it this way, and I've laid it out in your outline this way. On the one side of the page, you've got a lot of the world who believe things about Jesus... We believe about Jesus that he did these things. We, we believe that Jesus was a good man. We believe that Jesus had great teachings. We believe that Jesus was a fine example. We believe that Jesus was a rabbi who was murdered at the hands of the Romans and the Jews. These are facts that are known about Jesus. This is not really stuff that's up for debate anymore. It's just so well chronicled. We've, we've seen this. It's, it's absurd to think that this is a made-up character that has had this impact. We... Okay, we've got all these people. We believe these things about Jesus. But then there's this dividing line. And then there are a lot of people on the other side of the line. And the difference with this group of people is we do believe all of those things about Jesus. But we have stepped across the line that it's not just believing things about Jesus. We have come to trust in Jesus. We don't just believe about Jesus that he lived. We believe that he lives. We don't just believe that he was a good man. We believe that we trust in the fact that he is the savior of the world. And we have come to trust in the fact that he is our personal savior. Now, here's the key question. What is the dividing line that separates the people who believe about Jesus, a bunch of facts, and the people who trust in Jesus as personal savior? What is the dividing line? You want to know what that line is? The resurrection. This is the dividing line. You cannot get from here to here without believing in the resurrection. Paul said this, by this gospel are you saved, if you hold firmly to it until the end. That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose according to the scriptures. And you can't be saved without that. Now, here's the the simple appeal that I make to you this morning. All of the stuff that we believe about Jesus, and and in truth, anybody who's really looked into the matter, who just genuinely, doesn't matter how you were raised, if you really did a thorough examination, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus was a good man, that He taught these things, that He was a rabbi who lived and died. That's the stuff that isn't really up for debate. You're going to agree on that. But the reason that you know those things is because... The same people who told you those things said Jesus rose from the dead. He wasn't just a man who taught good things. He is the man who came back from the dead and validated everything that he said with his resurrection. So here's what you have to ask yourself. How do I get to accept anything about Jesus as true and not accept the most important thing about Jesus that is the defining issue? He was raised from the dead. You see what I'm saying? You either have to throw it all out and discredit it all because the same people who told you this stuff, anything you know that's true about Jesus, it came to you from the very people who said, hey, the most important thing, the one thing you have to know about Jesus is he died and rose from the dead. This is the central fact about Jesus. You cannot differentiate between, oh, these are the things Jesus taught and we believe him and this is what he did. We don't believe that. The same people brought you both messages. You see, at the heart of some of this is a real fundamental question, and it's one a lot of Christians do not like to wrestle with. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you in small group, you're going to wrestle with this this week. Why do the people in this group, of which I am one, those of us who trust in Jesus, why do we trust that Jesus died and rose from the dead? How do we get there? Well, some people are just naive and they'll just accept what mom and daddy told them or accept what a preacher tells them or what. Is that how we, well, we believe it because the Bible said so. Can I just tell you, I'm a skeptic by nature. I'm a, I'm a math and science thinker. I'm an empirical evidence kind of person. I like to have a reason for believing what i believe. I I don't, I don't think a blind leap into the dark is ever a good idea. That's just not my nature. Some people are more like that. A lot of people are like me. It's like, I need some evidence before I'm going to believe. How, how do you get from believing about to trusting in? Well, <clears throat> in answering that question of, you know, why do you believe the impossible? Why do you believe that a brutalized, mutilated, emptied out dead man came back to life? Why do you actually believe that? Here's what you can't answer with. I believe it because the Bible says so. Well, to a skeptic and a seeker, as precious as the Bible is, the Bible is a very old book. It's a collection of ancient writings. It is a very unique collection. It, it does even in, in literature. It stands as very unique, but it's still it's a very old book and books don't talk. So why do you believe? How do you get to a point of trusting it? I don't believe it because the Bible said so. I'll tell you why I believe it. I believe it because Matthew said so. Matthew's not a book. Matthew's a man. Matthew's a man whose life was changed. He's a man who spent time with Jesus, and he is a man who saw Jesus raised, and he declared it to his death. I believe it because Mark said so. Mark saw The reality of this, he experienced these things and he was the closest associate of Peter and wrote down what Peter preached. I believe it because Luke said so. And he was the best historian in the ancient world. And he researched this and he talked to countless people who saw the risen Jesus. I believe it because John said so. And John was as in the heart of it as anybody there. I mean, this is the guy so close to Jesus that as Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks at John and he looks at his mom and says, John, you know, my mom is now your mom. She's going to be taken care of by you. And this guy who was that involved said, I saw him. He is alive. I believe it because Peter said so. The closest friend, the man who went from coward to leader of the movement. Peter was there and he declared every chance he had. We have seen him and he is alive. I believe it because Paul says so. Paul hated the Jesus movement. He imprisoned Christians. He helped have Christians put to death. He wanted to do anything necessary. He would put his life on the line to stop this stupid Christian movement. It's foolishness. People don't come back from the dead. And he believed that until the day he personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. And from that point on, not only did he stop hunting down churches, he started planting churches. And everywhere he went, he told a different story because he met the resurrected Jesus. And I believe it because James says so. Not James the Apostle. James the brother of Jesus. (laughs) What would it take for you to believe that your sibling is divine? I mean, think about all the times. All the times. You just got a belly full of Jesus. Well, Jesus is always right. Thanks, Mom. You know your brother's never wrong. Thanks, Mom, for the reminder. We love Jesus. Obviously, you do. What's it going to take for you to be convinced that your brother is the one and only begotten son of God? James became convinced of it. He declared it. He was the central leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he helped to pen the New Testament. We believe. We trust in Jesus because the people who were there came away saying the same thing. We watched him die, and we saw him alive, and his resurrection... Changes everything because it validates not just that he taught good things, it validates his central message. And his central message was I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to die for the sins of other people, and his resurrection indicates that he really did that, that God the Father accepted that. And now we can all be translated from this group that just believes some stuff about Jesus to actually trusting in and knowing the living Jesus. And having Him change us so that our sins are forgiven and we actually belong to the family of God. How do you get from there to here? How do you get from believing about to trusting in? Well, it takes faith. Not blind, leap into the darkness kind of faith. It it takes faith. And and I get it. There are a lot of people who say, well, I'm just not really a faith person. I need need real evidence. Every person in this room, everybody listening and watching online right now, you are faith people and so am I. One reason I know that is because most all of you are sitting down right now. It took faith to sit in that chair. How would you know it was going to hold you up? You had to sit down to find out. Or here's a better example. How many of you walked to church today? Anybody? Nope. You all did what I did, didn't you? You got in your car and you drove to church. How many of you met somebody else in traffic along the way on the highway? Anybody besides me? I was doing 55 when I met some of the traffic on 181, they looked like they were doing about the same. That's a closing speed of 110 miles an hour. We passed six feet apart from each other. I didn't have an opportunity to do a breathalyzer on them or to ask them if they got any sleep last night. I trusted that they knew enough about how to drive, that they were alert enough, that they would stay six feet away from me and not kill me in that moment. We operate by faith every day of our lives. You live by faith in things that you cannot prove, but you at some point come to the conclusion, look, I can either stay at home hiding and afraid and miss out on life, or I can choose to get out there and get in the car and go experience the world trusting that things are going to work out. It takes faith to experience life, and it takes faith to experience eternal life. It's not a blind leap into the dark. It's examining the evidence. And if you examine it, you'll find the evidence is rock solid. Jesus did these things. He was crucified and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And he lives today as a living Lord. And he invites you to know and trust him. The invitation is so simple. Why would you believe anything about Jesus and reject the most important thing about Jesus? Believing that Jesus was a good man, believing that he died on the cross, will not do anything for you. It won't help you one bit today. It won't help you at the judgment seat of God. But choosing to respond to that, to receive him as your Lord, to trust that he died in your place and that that's paid the price for your sin can change everything. I want to give you the opportunity to do that before we leave today. There's nothing magical about what we're about to do, but I'm going to lead us in a simple prayer. It's a simple prayer of response. It's just a way of our hearts responding to God. And it's just declaring, I choose to believe and I choose to invite this living Jesus to live in me, to forgive me and change me. And I want to invite everyone in the room who belongs to this group, who's trusting in Jesus, to declare that again by praying out loud with me. And I want to invite every one of you who may have been on this side of the line to cross over by simply praying this aloud as an affirmation from your heart. If it's not what you believe today, you don't have to pray this aloud. You may feel a little torn about this. I want to remind you, Jesus said, it only takes a little mustard seed bit of faith to bring what you need to bring to the equation. He provides the rest. Would you bow together with me as we pray right now? Would you all pray aloud together? Lord Jesus, I believe in you today. I believe your message I believe you teaching. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe you rose from the dead. I ask you to come into my life. To forgive my sins. And to give me a fresh start. Would you take control of me? I give you today and my future. Would you lead me and use me? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you for hearing and answering these prayers, prayed from hearts that are hungry for you, and I pray that you would seal this moment with your Holy Spirit. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.